I think that it is refreshing to know that there are garbage, <laughs> shitty rich boy businessmen in other countries doing garbage, shitty businessmen things. Yes. Um, it's and- not just the US and the UK. It's fucking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. We are live. Hello, everybody. And welcome to episode... Oh, no. <laughs> are you hearing that as well? Hearing what? <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 me. Uh, no, never mind. Sorry, <laughs> screwed that up. Okay, the start of the stream. I I didn't have one of the channels muted, so uh, oh. I could hear myself. That was really annoying. I'm very sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> we'll get that right in editing. Anyway, hello everyone, and welcome to episode twenty of History's Greatest Idiots, the podcast in which we look back through the annals of history, not the annals of history, and discover the. <laughs> and discover the biggest mistakes in human history and teach you lessons so that you never repeat those mistakes again. But who are we kidding? We're humans. We love making mistakes. Kind of how we learn, to be honest. Uh, Just like that, like me not muting my audio properly. Uh, (laughs) Joining me as ever is my awesome co-host, Derek. Derek, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Doing good. Been a nice week. uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man. Um, it's getting to that season where, you know, like it's it, it's nice. It's getting cooler. Um, we don't really have like you guys have fall, right? So it's the whole season. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I I imagine actually in Arizona it's similar to the UK in that it's like you go from one season uh, into another unless it's like constantly burning hot hell down there. So we go from summer to darkness basically it's it's like the day and night cycle in a rainforest like you just you don't get a transition you just go to screeching cold cloud (laughs) cover freezing rain dogs that don't want to go for a walk all of that shit that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) i guess i guess to someone who lives in arizona the majority of the time it, it, it probably is amazing um so yeah how um how has the weather been over there? Is it kind of mad, or um, are you guys kind of cooling off a little bit? Oh, it's it's cooled off. It's been it's been amazing. It went from a hot, horrible, burning season <laughs> to just pretty decent season, which is what it nice. does. <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, yeah. We've we've gone to cold already. So thankfully, I now have new radiators in my house and uh, triple glazed windows are on their way. So I'm going to be snug as a bug in a rug soon uh yeah it's 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 upgrade all around my house anyway away from the weather because you know i'm british um we always talk about the weather uh derek can you tell me and i don't know anything this is the first time i've i've gone into this completely blind can you tell me who your idiot this uh episode is i have a uh, gentleman that i present to you today that led mm. an extraordinarily normal and mostly uneventful life, save for two little things that he did that uh, put him on my radar. Okay. He's I'm interested a, now. a German chemist by the name of Albert Niemann. Um, All right. And it's not what you think. I mean, maybe, maybe a little. Maybe a little bit, yeah. You knew where my mind was going there, to be honest. So, yeah, please carry on. Tell me about Albert Niemann. Is it Albert? Yes, Albert Niemann, and he was born on May 20th, 1834, in Gosler, 
which is oh, okay. it was in the kingdom of Hanover at the time. Okay. He, he was the child of a school principal and, like I said before, lived a pretty much just standard life of children and people at, at the time. Um, nice. It was in 1849 that he started to get a little bit more interesting, and he he began his apprenticeship at the town hall pharmacy in Gottingen, uh, okay. where he would it would lead him to his PhD in chemistry at George August University. Nice. Okay. So around this time when he's getting his PhD, there it's the what is it? Early to, well, it's 19th century European sometime era. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. chemists at the time are really interested in the effects of the uh, coca leaves that have been discovered in Latin America and brought back over. <laughs> okay. So in 1855, uh, the chemist Friedrich Gaidic, I think, I don't know, uh, published okay. a paper on the research of the active alkaloid extract from the coca leaves called aerothroxaline okay right because you know the alkaloids are all enes anyway yeah, the discovery course, yes. the discovery led to Neiman's doctoral advisor Friedrich Wohler to have some coca leaves imported to Germany through Karl von Scherzer who was a member of the Austrian no- no- Novara expedition oh, okay right yeah yeah and that gave him access to the leaves to bring them back so he gets those leaves brings them back to Neiman, and they begin to analyze him. So yeah. 1859, Neiman isolates cocaine from the coca leaves and names it uh, cocaine, or cocaine, because of the enes mm. in the alkaloid. He, ex- he extracted the primary alkaloid ingredient and named it, like I said. <laughs> and then he <laughs> wrote about him saying that the colorist, colorless transparent prisms uh, have an alkaline or alkaline reaction and a bitter taste that promote the flow of saliva and leave a peculiar numbness following a, by a sense of cold when applied to the tongue. Right. Okay. What about now, when you rub it into your gums? Yeah. Same nice. thing. Yeah. He's the first one to test cocaine. Um. They, they feel numb, but fucking amazing. You know? <laughs> So he published his findings in 1860 in his dissertation that earned him his Ph.D. And um, in 1860, he was published in the journal Archive de Pharmazine, I think. I don't know, man. It's, you know me in foreign words. (laughs) (laughs) Can I just ask, was he the only person in history to... um, finish a um a dissertation on cocaine rather than doing cocaine to finish a dissertation he was the og yes yeah. <laughs> he, he did it did it the wrong way first <laughs> well maybe the right way i guess well you know, hopefully yeah so the dude invented cocaine sorta because some other dude at the same time named paulo Manza, mantagazzi well I don't, man, a lot it's Italian. A lot going he, on in that name, yeah. He he uh, synthesized it around the same time in Italy, okay. like within reasonable, like it yeah. Just kiss, uh, the, just they both kind of happened anyway. That happened a lot, like around about the nineteenth and early twentieth century. There were a lot of people, kind of 
creating, inventing, and synthesizing the same things. It's like you ask people who invented the telephone, you're going to get like three or four different answers. You know, who invented the television? And, you know, there's so many different people that get credited that it really was just a race to the patents office at that point. Just like who gets credit is the first person through the door. And like, yeah, it was me. It was me. You know, so. <laughs> right. Uh, basically, that's what he that's did. It. He took some of his products and boom, came flying through the door. <laughs> Here, powder, <laughs> sniff it. <laughs> um, anyway, so he invented cocaine as we know it today, and then he decides nice. to go on to other chemist work, as one does when they're a chemist. Yeah, and meth, in, you know. Yeah, he did not invent blue meth. That's not what comes oh, next. But sad. it does start with an M, and here we go. In 1860, Neiman was experimenting with ethylene and sulfur chloride or dichloride, which okay. produced mustard gas. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's right. The two things this guy is known for is being the inventor of cocaine and sort of accidentally finding <laughs> mustard gas. Not exactly. Sorry, go on, carry on. I was going to say, it's not exactly the same sort of hot party drug no, that he was hoping no, that, for. No, you don't want to get those two mixed up, really. No. You don't want to, you know, the businessmen in the 80s were probably not doing lines of mustard gas before they played squash at nine o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. But yeah, <laughs> that's that, That's a hell of a party mistake. Oh no, instead of sending the mustard gas to, you know, um, independent warriors or, or assassins all over the world we've accidentally sent them cocaine and we've sent the mustard gas to a party that would Oop. be kind of disastrous whoops Bo my god on both gas. fronts yeah <laughs> holy shit <laughs> <laughs> they're launching vials of cocaine at their opponents in the air it's like oh thanks that's really helpful <laughs> yeah oh my god so um he wasn't exactly the first or the only one on cocaine or the first or the only one on mustard gas. Sure. But he was one of the first to document the gas's toxic effects. Um, so, let's see, there's another one. It's another Friedrich. Friedrich Guthrie was oh. working on the, the same chemicals at the same time and reported yeah. the same reaction. <laughs> but... You know, I wanted to give Albert some credit because yeah. he, he is possibly one of the, the inventors. He was at least among the people working on it at the time that came out sure. with the results. So yeah. he described these properties of the gas saying, quote, it consists in a fact that even the slightest trace, which happens to be on any part of the skin, does not initially cause scarring, but after a few hours it causes reddening of the skin, followed mm. by... A day it produces uh, burn blisters, which fester for a very long time and mm. are extremely and extraordinarily difficult to heal, leaving mm. severe scars. They so, really are. I believe he might have tested that on himself. Sounds like it, yeah. Um, and that, I, what, that was going to be one of my questions. Like, how do you... Because a lot of scientists, like... I mean, if you look at Marie Curie... One of the reasons she died the way she did was because she was like, "Oh, look, radium! Woo! Rub it on my face! <laughs> Yay!" Uh, it's like a lot of scientists like they're so proud of what they've done that sometimes safety measures go out of the window. So I was going to say, I really hope this guy was observing proper laboratory etiquette when he's fucking around with mustard gas. 
for the Maybe. first time. You would hope so. It's like, oh, oh, it's in the air. Oh, God, is someone cooking something nice? Oh, shit, my skin. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's not a good start for your day. Really? Dude, wow. Horrible, horrible stuff and nothing like mm, yeah. cocaine. And it went on to be used as a horrible weapon of war with the first mm. large-scale use of the lethal poisonous gas being used on the battlefield by the Germans on the 22nd of April in 1915. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps, fortunately, uh, Neiman would not live to see the brutal use of his invention because he died on January 19th, 1861. Oof. uh, Reportedly from suppuration of the lung, and it's widely believed that his exposure to mustard gas through his working with it probably resulted in his end. Yeah, there Uh, you go. That was coming, wasn't it, really? Yeah, so... Um, kind of a short one that ends the spectacular, pretty short life, which was just 26 years is all wow. he lived. Um, another yeah. year he could have joined the, uh, the 27 club with like Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain and that lot, you know, rock stars that died too early. Dude, I wonder if he put something in the cocaine that, oh. Never mind. That's what it is, like a time release thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I want other young people to join me in death. So he's like laced cocaine and all the musicians' drugs. Wow. So he yeah. lived to, that's... It's kind of a weird balance, that, because, like you say, he only lived to 26, right? Right. But in that time, he essentially invented cocaine. Which is good and bad. Which is good and bad. You know, it was used as a a sedative very early on in medicine. It was one of the first uh, ways of sedating a patient that wasn't getting them pissed or knocking them out, like physically knocking them out. Um, so, yeah, um, so there's that aspect of it. Obviously, we wouldn't have Coca-Cola without this man either because that was a key ingredient in the early days of it, Coca-Cola. And it was an early, early local anesthetic too yeah. that uh, led to different eans uh, like uh, Novocaine type yeah. of thing. Yeah, Benzocaine. morphine and stuff. Yeah, yeah that you know, we're talking about... An incredibly important medical thing, which unfortunately has used, has seen far more use outside of the medical field than it has within it, and unfortunately has become something of a, a, a really dangerous drug. I mean, cocaine. I mean, people say, oh, people don't die from cocaine use. They do. There are plenty of people that die from cocaine use, and they certainly fuck up their lives. Um, but yeah, the other one, the mustard gas one. I, I guess it's kind of the legacy of like um, Nobel. Who, you know, is like, oh, I'm going to invent something so amazing, so deadly that no one will ever create anything worse again. It's like, actually, dude, you had no idea, A, what you were doing, <laughs> and B, how much more people would be like, oh, yeah, I'll fucking have that bet, you arsehole. Um, so, yeah, I can't... Hmm. See, it's difficult because this isn't like a Thomas Midgley situation where t- he, like, knew the dangers of it and kind of carried on letting people use his world-ending poisons for decades so that he could make as much money as possible. That's that's the Thomas Midgley story. This right. guy was a scientist at his core, a chemist, and he invented two amazing things that he never really got a chance to fully see come to like proper use. So right. I can't give him a massive score. However, the dude invented mustard gas, which was the forerunner to nerve gas and all the other like chemical and biological weapons that we have to this very day. Although, you know, biological warfare goes back to the days when people were launching like disease-ridden people over castle walls and shit like that to try and you know infect right. towns and that. Um, so I am going to say, um, for the fact that he was a very good 
scientist and died so young. He achieved so much in his life. So immediately that's like right up there, you know, 26, invented two incredibly important things, good or bad, but also the use that they've gone on to have. You kind of have to put him reasonably high for that because of the amount of deaths. So I'm going to say 80 for this guy. That's fair, Um, yeah. I feel like 80 is good because, you know, a hard worker, you know, a good scientist, invented so many things in his short time at a time when it was, you know, lab experiments were incredibly dangerous things. Oh, yeah. There's there's no two ways about it. Like, if you were fucking around with chemicals in the 19th century, there was a fair chance you were going to die. So right, they didn't exactly to. have safety protocols. But, no, yeah, I don't he had an amazing have, had, three years. That's what. Yeah, I mean. he had a gr- <laughs> wow. Yeah, three year career, and he invented that. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. That is kind of amazing. So the fact that he did all that in three years, you kind of wish he'd lived longer. You know, because I feel like he would have been able to put himself to more good use as opposed to mustard gas use. He might have uh, come up with like a re, uh, adverse or uh, an anecdote for the gas. Yeah, an antidote would have been, uh, yeah, or like maybe he could have uh, tested safety equipment that could have been used later down the line in wars and stuff. Obviously, we had gas masks as a result of this, but I certainly think that given more time, he would have probably gone on to be remembered as one of the greatest people uh, in the the field of chemistry because he could have done more amazing things, but unfortunately that didn't happen. So I'm happy to give... Uh, the inventor of cocaine and mustard gas in 80 because of the damage he's done. Also, you know, uh, just as a wrestling fan, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning died of acute cocaine intoxication at the age of 44. So uh, I, I'm giving him a higher mark because of that because we all love Kurt Henning. He was awesome. So uh, okay. well, <laughs> away I, from I, that. I think that that's fair and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of an amazing, uh, you know, you talk about the knock-on effects people have um, it, and and the way people misuse their inventions, because mustard gas could have been used for other things, but inevitably it's been used for bad. It's kind of like philosophers, they'll come up with a great idea and then, you know, 50 years later, someone will use it as a reason to go to war or some shit, you right. know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it could have been more positive had he been around for a bit longer. Certainly if he'd seen into the 20th century, he would have probably seen the advent of World War One coming, as a lot of people did at the turn of the century, and maybe could have done something to stop it from a chemical point of view. So perhaps I mean, he was German, though, so he would have been oh, yeah. on the yeah. side of the ones that used it first. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, he probably yeah. But let's let's not go into alternate history, but yeah, that's that's the definite possibility given her, given who the Kaiser was. Really, and we know all about Kaiser Wilhelm, don't we? We covered him in another episode. Um, so that's the guy who invented cocaine and mustard gas. Uh, now it's time to move on to my fella, and it is a man. Sorry out there, all you uh, you men who think that you know men should be uh, kind of raised up to certain levels. Unfortunately, if you dominate history, you're also going to make up the vast proportion of stupid people in it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> my man this week is our first Indian idiot. Um, yes. Let Indian me tell you... Subcontinent India? In Subcontinent... In, oh, wait, hang okay. on. Have we had... Yeah, the Indian subcontinent. Why? Because we, we had... What's his name? Who pissed off um, Genghis Khan, didn't oh, we? Oh, yeah. No, he was... Yeah, he was over... The other oh, side of the mountains there. Oh, okay, that's that's fine. So, uh, <laughs> modern day India's first entry into uh, history's greatest idiots. Let me introduce you to the life and times of Vijay Malya, the Indian playboy fugitive. 
So, All right. <laughs> yeah, I want to give credit. There are a few people um, I cribbed it. Well, a few sources I cribbed uh, this off. Uh, StartupTalky.com, who had never heard of until I did the research for this, and Wikipedia and uh, stuff like that. I kind of got some of the uh, the information from this from those sources. So, VJ Malia was born on the 18th of December, 1955, in Bantwal, Mangalore, Kart. Kartnataka, India, to an affluent business family as uh, the son of former chairman of the United Breweries Group Vital Malia and Lalithal Ramayaya, I think that is. I'm just going to call him Malia. There's a lot of Indian names, but uh, it's it's actually going to change a little bit because this guy is... uh, about as far away from kind of traditional Indian values as can humanly be, Malia spent his school and college days in Kolkata. He was a student of the La Martinera Calcutta School, where he was appointed house captain of Hastings House in his final year, uh, following which he went on to be admitted to St. Xavier's College in Calcutta, where he graduated with an honours in the Bachelor of Commerce degree in 1976. There is a strong set stench of privilege hanging around this dude from the outset. Um, it seems like he, he's wealthy, got good education in a place where it's not so common. Yeah, certainly. Like Obviously, with, with India being like a formal former part of uh, the British colonial empire... Uh, the English like to take their private school education with them wherever they go, and co- saying that you are, I'm house captain of Hastings House, that's about as fucking posh English <laughs> as it can get, to be honest with you, other than saying, I went to Eton. That's like, that's pretty fucking posh right there. Um, <laughs> He interned in his family's businesses during his college days, which, you know, he was probably getting money for that as well. Post-graduation, however, Malia flew to the United States and started his career as an intern in the American part of Hochster AG. Now, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly. They're a huge company. H-O-E-C-H-S-T. And then, like, capital A and G are a separate thing. I think it's like a Dutch... Um, huge Dutch company. I'm not sure, but yeah. Anyway, they're big. Okay. Um, though Malia was born to humble parents because they they came from nothing. You know, this is a real like Donald Trump senior situation. Okay. This is okay. like it's like you know Donald Trump's dad, uh, right. whatever his name was. Um, he you know he really did come from kind of nothing. Um, and built his way up, and then his son was like, can I have a $7 million loan so that I can start my business career? Like, yes, yeah, son, try not to go bankrupt four times. Uh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> whoops. Didn't work. Uh, so he was born to humble parents. He never uh, decided to settle for a quiet life, kind of like his dad. His dad was very... Uh, he was a traditional, successful businessman in that he didn't like to be part of the limelight. He wanted to get on with the business of actually running the thing, and like having a decent kind of home life, working a lot, but trying to build things up gradually over time. His son was not that guy. His son was kind of like the son of every rich person, particularly around the time of the 60s and the 70s when stuff started to change in societies around the world. Um, He had access to money and an education and a business that he could just walk into. So this guy was not humble from the very beginning. Um, 
and he's beginning to sound like a character from Succession. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But basically, he's he's Kieran Culkin in Succession at this point. Um, his journey yeah, he better star- be that cool. <laughs> he would be, yeah. I, I fucking love Succession. That's amazing. Um, his journey started with United Breweries, which is already an MNC business conglomerate comprising of over 60 companies. So huge, huge company. However, as soon as he joined the business, he worked hard to grow it and managed to increase the overall turnover by around 64%, increasing the company's net worth to $11 billion by the end of 1998. So late that's, 90s, that's a fucking, that's a that's big a company. a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Late 90s, 11 billion. This is around about the time of the um, the internet bubble burst. So yeah, you could buy the, Amazon stock for like a penny. <laughs> the, the dot com troubles. Yeah, that was around about this time. And a lot of companies went out of business. And yet his his dad and his company worth $11 billion. Kind of amazing. Um, he achieved his largest... Uh, he, he achieved the success of the company largely by... Kind of one of two things that I'll talk about now. He created a series of adverts for uh, Kingfisher Beer, which is a now world-famous brand, largely because of the success of the adverts. A lot of Indian society at this time was still very kind of rigid, and he created these adverts that are probably very stereotypical 1980s beer commercials if you were to watch American television. So, like, a lot of partying, a lot of, like, hot women, a lot of, like, good times, people drinking beer on the beach, that sort of thing, um, and just lots of partying, lots of dancing, smiling people. And that was what Kingfisher did. They started doing these adverts where people were having parties in various locations, having a great time, smiling. And adverts like that were not standard back in 1998, apparently. So he did. Seems like with their coming from a caste system and. and Yeah, a very rigid caste system as well. Um, So to be able to show people, look, you can have a good time. You can break the shackles of whatever it is that's holding you back. Drink this beer. Um, that was a key to success. And of course, it wouldn't, it didn't hurt that he put himself in the adverts. Like every fucking advert, there he is, front and center, drinking his own beer. So he's kind of like Richard Branson if Richard Branson owned beer and was like, hey, come to my house. Let's all party. Yay. He's that guy. He's that guy. He's he's that fucking guy. I'm going to be in my own commercials. Um, Can you act? No, but I'm paying you, so shut the fuck up. Um, (laughs) So um, the, the adverts themselves were kind of, the parties were low level, but he'd garnered a reputation by this point in his private life, although it wasn't really that fucking private, um, as a Gatsby-like party hound. Like, they were lavish to extreme levels, and it's hard to tie down what is real about some of the descriptions of these parties, because he kept them private, but he would, like, invite the press to take pictures of people who were attending, but then shut them outside so they couldn't see what was going on. There are stories of (laughs) drugs, prostitutes, kind of, you know, the usual like high-end parties that you would get where there would be naked women with food on them and you know just a yeah, lot of okay. craziness but like also like he would redecorate the places that were going to have parties not to like theme them but he just completely redecorate them spend thousands upon thousands of dollars just redoing the entire room and stuff Damn. um yeah he he did this so much his behavior earned him the nickname the king of good times which 
is a, a kick-ass a, nickname. That's a fucking great <laughs> nickname right there. It's all, it was uh, an appropriate moniker as, you know, he was already living the lifestyle of a king. He was making, he himself was making millions of dollars a year just from his day job. And in fairness, he deserved it. He'd increased the revenue of the company by 64%. That's a fucking, that's a lot of money. So he was just like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to have fun. And uh, the nickname, the King of Good Times, eventually became the tagline of Kingfisher Beer itself. So That's brilliant right there. That's really smart. He's tying himself to the brand, which normally any uh, advertising person worth their salt will be like, don't fucking do that, because the second you make a mistake, the brand damages itself. Um, but at the time, he was known for lavish parties, and he was a, a playboy in India. He was all over the news, all over TV. Why not tie your brand of beer to this image? And also, it's it's worth pointing out, while he was throwing lavish parties, Kingfisher beer itself was so cheap. It was the cheapest beer you could possibly imagine. And it was pretty good, like it tasted okay, it's kind of sweet. Um, and the adverts were everywhere. So the combination of the low price plus the hugely popular advertising meant that Kingfisher managed a 50% market share of the Indian beer market. I'll say that again. 50% of Indian beer drinkers, a nation with over a billion people in its population, drank his beer. That's Uh, insane. Those are good numbers. That's amazing. So you've got cheap beer... You've got a really popular advert. You've got a famous person who is attached to the brand who you don't have to pay anything to be part of the brand because he's already earning millions anyway. And you've cornered the market where, like, a vast majority of people will have a beer at some point in their lives. I know, obviously, alcohol is not always kind of straightforward in some parts of India, but to have 50% of the market, that's amazing. So It's like he's the original influencer. Yeah, essentially, yeah. He was uh, a modern-day influencer in the making, certainly before social media was even a thing. This guy was doing massive things in terms of marketing himself and his brand. And as a result of that, the parent company of Kingfisher is worth $11 billion, almost entirely based on the success of this one beer. I mean, there were other investments they made that we'll get into in the time uh, in you know the next few segments, but that was the success. Fifty percent market share of beer in a country oh, yeah. that is as big as India. It's like the dream for any businessman. Um, Over the years, he uh, managed to diversify and acquired uh, Berger Paints, Best and Compton in 1988, Mangalore Chemicals and Fertilizers in 1990, the Asian Age newspaper and the publisher of film magazines Cineblitz, a Bollywood magazine in 2001. And for a while, Kingfisher was the primary sponsor of Force India, a pretty successful Formula One racing team until it changed its name to Racing Point when it was bought out by a consortium. Um, being the main sponsor of a Formula One team, it, it, it's it's a lot of money. Like you pour yeah, that's big you, time. That is huge because <laughs> pretty much every, after every race, you have to rebuild the car, and every time you and, and you've got two two drivers, and they've got to have two cars each, so you've got to rebuild two of them each week. Um, they're eight million pounds each, so that's a yeah. that's a shitload of money. Obviously, they have other minor sponsors as well, but Kingfisher were the main sponsors of this team, and oh man, that's that's a lot of money. Um, 
when um unfortunately this is where things start to turn um oh. beer commercials were banned on indian media and vj saw it as a personal front he was like well i've got 50 percent of the market share feels like a personal attack fuck it i'll buy an airline and call it kingfisher so <laughs> he was like uh, it's free advertising for my beer um and i can fly anywhere i can offer kingfisher beer exclusively on the flights i can let people take it off the plane we can serve it in the airport they can see the big kingfisher logo on the side of these planes we'll fly low into airports in major metropolitan cities so that they can see the kingfisher thing so it's essentially a flying billboard is how he saw pretty brilliant very smart very very (laughs) smart and of course when it came time to launch the thing he made a big deal out of it and he was on every news channel, segment after segment, saying, yes, Kingfisher Airlines, where we also serve beer, is going to be a huge <laughs> success. So it's like he kept his, his market share by buying an airline. That's just, it just doesn't it's happen. Unconventional. Um, I kind of, I, I know, I, I, for me, I would have bought a blimp, um, called it Kingfisher, and um, outfitted it with beer cannons on both sides and just sprayed down cheap beer from the heavens <laughs> i feel like that would have been more successful it it, it would have probably done pretty well <laughs> just people lined up on the streets going ah ah here, here it comes ah oh that was a bird um <laughs> kingfisher airlines was established in 2003 it was owned by the bangalura based united breweries group obviously his parent company the airline started commercial operations on uh the 9th of may 2005 right after malia's uh son siddhartha's 18th birthday reportedly as a birthday gift so he bought his son a fucking airline. Uh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> like there was a guy, was a gangster out in, uh, was it New Jersey, who bought his son a hockey team, um, the Garbage Men or something like that. And oh, they they bought in a bunch of like um, minor league players and paid them a fortune and they were like the best of the best in the minor league. And then the NHL shut down and they became the hottest hockey team in, in like the US and stuff. I can't remember where it was. I'm sure was it New Jersey or was it somewhere else? Anyway, they were called the Garbage Men, um, and they. I think he, the guy who bought the company, obviously he was in with the mob. Eventually, ended up in prison because they all do. But like, <laughs> he bought his son a hockey team. This fucking dude bought his son an airline. So oh, that's next level. That is like, yeah, I'll see your your sports franchise and uh, you know a carrier in the skies. For a minute, I thought you said back in the 80s he owned Compton, and I was like, wait, the city? <laughs> yeah, no wonder they <laughs> were wrapping Bad investment right then. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that was not a good time to buy Compton. And yeah. So, um, reportedly, as a birthday gift, he bought his son this airline uh, with a fleet of four new Airbus A320 200s operating uh, flights from Mumbai to Delhi, so like the two major metropolitan hubs in India. It started its international operations on the 3rd of September 2008, so a few years later, by connecting uh, Bengaluru with London. So that's like, that's a big route right there. That's that's yeah. long flights. Um, it should also be noted, um, Kingfisher was a cheap airline. And it's a- yeah, it's a budget, they call them budget airlines. It's basically, he copied the formula he had with his beer and, and put it into airlines. And if you've ever flown with a budget airline, you will know that flying more than about two hours, it becomes incredibly uncomfortable. 
um, Mm -hmm. because it's cheap as shit. (laughs) The seats are horrible. You know, they've cut as many corners as possible. You're basically flying in one of those, like, portable loos uh, (laughs) with wings, essentially, because you can smell everything. And, uh, yeah, it was was not going to be a great idea to fly from London to India, which is, like, that's, like, 10, 11-hour flight right there on this thing. So it's a long ways. <laughs> it's a long way in a shit airline. Um, so uh, the offices, it would later moved uh, the offices to Adhiri in Mumbai. Its registered office was located in UB City, Bangalore. In November 2005, during the World Economic Forums, the airline's CEO, VJ Malia, announced the airline's intention to launch an IPO to raise $200 million for the airline's expansion and possible takeovers. So he's selling this as like, oh, yeah, you know, we're we're aiming for the sky. We're going to buy everyone out and we're going to, yeah, all we need is like, we'll just raise $200 million and you can all have places on the board and blah, blah, blah. Um, He wanted (laughs) to buy Air Sahara, which uh, was kind of like a small airlines, but I think he wanted to expand into the the Middle East and, and the Sahara region and stuff like that. Unfortunately, it later transpired that the airlines uh, were already heavily in debt and going each year they made massive losses. Um, So that's why, yeah. It was essentially, he attended a Ponzi scheme um, only using his airline uh, to raise the money. He's like, we're going to expand, but actually he just needed to pay off his debts. So that's not... Ah, Okay. So when your investors find that out, uh, they ain't going to be happy. Uh, it seems like a low uh, running a low cost airline is a bit harder than running a low cost beer because people can't really get addicted to uh, you know sitting in shit seats and smelling you know people's lingering farts for hours at a time. That's why you yeah. should have gone with the blimp idea. That you exactly. Got here. If you'd just gotten my <laughs> blimp idea, my man, you'd still be in business now and you wouldn't be on the run. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, in November 2011, it started that the airline started to report its losses. The acquisition of loss-making Bangalore-based Air Deccan in 2007 made matters worse. It was believed that Vijay Malia and his team failed to follow due diligence with the airline, and they just bought it the fuck. They were like, "Just give us another airline; it'll do." Um, <laughs> courtesy of NM Rothschild Consultants, who brokered the deal, so this Rothschild company basically fucked them over. So uh, seems conspir- about right. Yeah, conspiracy theorists <laughs> have your way with that one. I I tell you what, uh, what's that? It's it seems pretty standard for um, kind of these slimy, slippery, yeah. middle generation rich guy businessmen like uh, VJ and perhaps a, a Kushner feller, um, <laughs> where they make really shit investments that yeah. should be a good idea that end up losing them money, and then they got to go be scuzzy to yeah. try to cover their debts. So it, I guess that's a... It, it seems to be, yeah, it definitely is a trend. It's I think it's called George Bush syndrome. Uh, <laughs> I think it's called Arbusto, where you just drill holes in the desert and nothing comes up. Um, oh, that would suck. Yeah, that's basically what he did. And guess whose money he borrowed while he was doing that? The Bin Laden family. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) he had connections. Uh, So yeah, like it seems to be that the sons of successful, kind of hardworking 
sometimes very quiet and private businessmen like the Trumps, like the Bushes, like VJ Malia and Jerry Kushner, as you're saying, they don't make very good businessmen and they make very poor decisions because they're just sort of like they're about the deal. They're not about doing the work before the deal comes in. So they won't do research. They won't look into it. They won't hire the right people. They'll just be like, you, you just go and buy it. You know, when yep. uh, when you're already in debt, you just buy more bad debt. So he blamed the brokerage for that, but really it was the fact that he just wanted to buy stuff that was his undoing. Um, after an initial change uh, of name to Simply Fly Deccan, oof, Followed by it's... Kingfisher Red and a promotion as the domestic budget Kingfisher airline failed to stem losses, and Kingfisher stuff suffered a loss of ten billion rupees, which sounds like a lot, but it's actually uh, one hundred and thirty million US dollars. But that was over. Th- that was every year for three consecutive years. Ooh, so that's that gonna hurt. yeah, that's gonna hurt. That's like uh, that's crazy lost central right there. That's like Twitter losses. Right there. Um, <laughs> it's low cost carrier Kingfisher Red shut on uh, 2011. And in 2012, employees were, um, who weren't getting salaries from the parent company went on strike. Meanwhile, while they were striking for months of unpaid salaries, uh, VJ Malia was still throwing those ridiculous, lavish, elaborate parties. Um, the kind of parties that would have made Rick James go, oh, fucking hell, rein it in. Just like, <laughs> calm down a bit. What are you doing? There's people that need paying. Uh, yeah. So I kind of... Yeah, that's a dick move. It is a massive <laughs> dick move, isn't it? And like he didn't change... Like, Look, I understand rich people throw their money around. It's just... It's what they do. But, you, you know, you do it quietly if you're in a situation like that. You don't keep on inviting the press and, you know, damage your brand even more because... People are in one news article. You've got like thousands of people on the streets demanding that you pay them their wage, and then the next article is you throwing a massive party for all your mates in yeah. like a mansion. It just it's it's bad optics, I guess. You yeah, could it say. doesn't play well. <laughs> it doesn't play well with your average person that happens to walk around carrying a weapon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in a disclosure statement to the Bombay Stock Market Exch- uh, Stock Exchange, the BSE, he explained. No, I just, I, this, this is a whole thing. The company has incurred substantial losses and its net worth has been eroded. However, having regard to improvement in the economic sentiment, whatever the fuck that means, uh, <laughs> rationalization measures adopted by the company, fleet recovery, and the implementation of the debt recast package with the lenders and promoters, including conversion of debt into share capital, these interim financial statements have been prepared on the basis that the company is a going concern and that no adjustments are required to the carrying value of assets and liabilities, which is business speak for these are not the droids you are looking for. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that translates to we have no idea what the fuck we're doing. We're making shit up as we go. We may have made a bad decision and lost a bunch of money. Yeah, it's, it's basically like the world's fucked and we're fucked too because we made a series of bad decisions. But, you know, the government's doing an okay job. We're not too bad so keep giving us money it's like no mean well yeah um (laughs) so please don't devalue us no you've you've admitted that it's not worth the share price so why are you asking people not to devalue it it was the jedi mind trick that was never going to work and um 
The filing was widely covered by Indian and international print and electronic media and analysts who ripped him to shreds. They were like, this guy, you don't admit something like that. You you spin it. But he admitted it, and he was like, can we still keep you money? It's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Kingfisher Airline lenders later stated they considered the company viable. What the fuck? Um, on the 15th of November 2011, the airline released poor financial results indicating that it was drowning in high-interest debt and losing money. I repeat, they said they were losing money, and yet it's still a viable investment. Jesus. Uh, Malia I don't know how that works. Uh, th- I want to yeah. get so rich that I can just lose money yeah. year after year and still throw parties. <laughs> I know. I just kind of feel like these investors should have been like, look, we want this guy out and someone who knows what they're doing in because they yeah. have the power to do that, right? They have the majority of the shares. Kick him out. But no, um, they didn't do that. Malia indicated that his solution was for the government to reduce fuel and other tax prices. Good fucking luck with that, mate. You're trying to take on the government now. That's not going to work. The government was engaged in assessing whether to bail out the company and other airlines, or, this is my favourite part, let market forces determine which survived. Seriously, fuck them, let them die. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work if you want yeah. it to work right. Isn't it capitalism? <laughs> Fuck them. They've yeah. thrown money around. They're not surviving. Yet other airlines are. Stop bailing out airlines that can't run themselves properly. They're useless. Give us an, an, alternate, an alternative. Yeah. It's just it doesn't make sense. So anyway, in December 2011, for the second time in two months, Kingfisher's bank accounts were frozen by the Mumbai Income Tax Department for non-payment of dues. The firm owed 700 million rupees, around US uh, $9 million, to the tax department at the time. That's just in taxes. So, God yeah, knows. that's nuts. That's kind of crazy. That's uh, Wesley Snipes' money. Um, yeah. By early 2012, the airline accumulated losses of over 70 billion rupees, that's uh, 930 million US dollars, with half of its fleet grounded and several members of its staff going on strike. They say several members. It was like dozens, possibly in the hundreds. Uh, King <laughs> Fisher's position in the top Indian airlines on the basis of market share had slipped from second to last due to the crisis. So they'd gone from, again, a huge market share down to basically nothing. Malia was looking for buyers for the Vile Parlay Kingfisher House. Not sure if you should call it that. With the freezing of the (laughs) bank accounts of the airline by the income tax department, the airline was in financial disarray. On the 20th of November 2012, Kingfisher Airlines suspended its operations after its license was suspended by the Directorate General of Civil Aviation after it failed to address the Indian regulators' concerns about its operations. On the 25th of February 2013, its international flying rights and domestic slots were scrapped by the Indian aviation authorities, and in July 2014, Kingfish Airlines' indebtedness appeared as the the country's state-owned bank's uh, non-performing, it's the top non-performing asset after failing to repay loans of 40 billion rupees. So it's $500 million. That's a shitload of money. So they, they just like not paid any of that that year. Um, on March, the on 2nd of March, 2016, after nearly four years of bankruptcy, uh, after nearly four years of the bankruptcy of Kingfisher Airlines, the consortium of 13 Indian banks 
led by State Bank of India, moved the Debt Recovery Tribunal to recover its dues, which included uh, 9,000 crores um, owned by its promoter, Vijay Malia. Now, 9,000 uh, crores is like a certain, because there's so many rupees, it's like a certain increment of rupees. So it's like millions and millions adds up to crores or something like that. I, I think that's how it works. Anyway, it wasn't just the airlines. <laughs> Vijay Malia now owed money. However, Uh-oh. here it comes. <coughs> and I need to take a drink for this because I need my throat to be thoroughly lubricated for this next part. Yeah, you don't want it all scratchy and painful. Oh, yeah. Good. However, by the time the Debt Recovery Tribunal went in to find Vijay Malia to recover the debts by seizing assets, Malia had fled the country for the UK, despite the court proceedings by Indian banks initiated against him. Two years later, (laughs) the British courts ordered extradition of Malia after a prolonged legal battle and Malia could be brought back to India if his appeal against the court order is not turned down. I'm going to get to those proceedings in a second, but it's like he saw the writing on the wall, and he fucking fled. He ran for the hills, and he got the hell out of there. <laughs> it's it's a tactic that works. There are plenty of people who have fled um, because they, okay. you know... Yeah, like usually war <laughs> criminals, though, right? Um, yeah. You don't normally yeah. see businessmen fleeing debts um it's usually people who are like threatened by a government because they're too powerful or um threatened because they're political opposition it's not a guy who's just really bad at his job fleeing yeah yeah um but this guy was high profile and it was very recent so let's get to the financial irregularities on the 18th of okay. November 2017, Mali was arrested by the UK Metropolitan Police Extradition Unit on behalf of the Indian authorities in relation to accusations of fraud and was released on bail pending further consideration of the case. On the 9th of May 2017, the Supreme Court of India found Malia guilty of contempt of court and summoned him to appear on the 10th of July. When he failed to appear, the Supreme Court said that contempt case would only proceed further if he was produced before the court. Interpol sent out a warrant for his arrest. Uh-oh. My man, you're <laughs> fucked. Um, Malia dismissed this. This is so good. Malia dismissed the proceedings against him, calling the situation, It's a witch hunt! No. This is the exact opposite of a witch hunt. This is, yeah. I have done absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, I am glad that this is finally before a UK court and an impartial court at that, so we can wait and see how it plays out. Newsflash, didn't play out so well for him. Uh, (laughs) Didn't go well. In the meantime, uh, he's not allowed to leave Britain. They seize his passport, uh, but he has said that there is no hardship for him. He said... There's nothing to miss for him about India since his immediate family has all moved to England or the United States. I'm not sure if dissing your home country when they're trying to extradite you is really going to help things that much. Might make them have a little more motivation. Might might make them greet you at the airport with weapons, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm in London. Uh, I've got I've got Harrods on my doorstep. What more do I need? Um, no, you, you don't. You don't fucking do that to your own country. Um, on October the twenty, uh, sorry, have we got to that point? Yeah, October 
the 3rd, 2017, Malia was arrested as part of money laundering case in London and was bailed and released. This is an international money laundering thing now. An appeal to extradite him from Britain was filed on charges of bank fraud estimated at 90 billion rupees. That's 1.2 billion US dollars. Yeah, he's really in the shit now. The final hearing on extradition uh, will be held at the um, let's see, Westminster's. Oh, this is an old one. Would have been held at Westminster's Magistrate Court, Westminster's Magistrate Court, on the thirty-first of July. Balia is on bail. His current arrest on an extradition warrant in April two thousand and seventeen. Malia is fighting an extradition case in the UK. Uh, he was ordered to pay two hundred thousand pounds to Indian banks by the United Kingdom High Court. I'm assuming that's an interest payment. Um, yeah, because just a little something to keep him tidied over for a minute. Yeah, just like just just keep him quiet, dude. This is getting annoying now. Um, he was also asked to pay debts towards uh, registration of worldwide freezing order and of Karnataka's debt recovery tribunal. Vijay Malia has to pay dues to. 13 banks, namely SBI, BOB, Corporation Bank, Federal Bank Limited, IDBI Bank, Indian Overseas Bank, J&K Bank, Punjab and Sindh Bank, PNB, State Bank of Mysore, UCO Bank, UBI, and JM Financial Assets Reconstruction Co. Fuck me. (laughs) <laughs> 13 uh, institutions want this man on uh, on their their ground so that they can go after him. Yeah, the consortium that's, that's not go a on, good sorry. thing. <laughs> that's that's not going to work out so well for you. Uh the consortium attempted to gain possession of Malia's 20 million pound property on Cornwall Terrace in London, but Malia claimed it was owned by his mother. <laughs> that's exactly like Jared Kushner. That is exactly like Jared Kushner. That is the classic move of any like billionaire. It's I've seen it happen so many times with like rich people, even like local businessmen. They will um, buy, so the company will buy a car, right? Um, they will write it off on tax because it's a business expense, and then they'll sell the car to the owner's son for one pound. You know, right. so. It's like we pick up the check, the son gets a brand new car. It's it's a whole fucking thing. So that's basically what he's done with his house in London. And I'm sure like HMRC were like, are you fucking kidding? We've seen this at the lowest possible levels. What are you doing? <laughs> um, <coughs> USB, oh, sorry, UBS, went to court in 2018 seeking to evict Malia, his son Siddhartha, and his mother Lalith from Cornwall Terrace. So they didn't even pay fucking rent or whatever. A trial was set for. Oh no, I guess it would have been mortgage, wouldn't it? A trial was set for the twentieth of May uh, for May twenty nineteen. The trial did not go ahead since Malia uh, drew up a settlement with UBS, finally paid off some of the debts. According to the terms of the arrangement uh, agreement, Malia could remain in the property, and if the mortgage was not repaid by April twenty twenty, UBS has a right to immediate possession. So he'd come to. He he gotten away with it basically. He was like, "I'll pay you by this day," and they're like, "Right, if you don't, we're we're cu- we're kicking the door in and coming down, uh, coming through with everything." Right. So, 
Uh, Malia must also pay the interest of £820,000 accrued up to April 2019, plus any uh, further amount accrued up to the 1st of May 2020. He was also instructed to pay legal costs of £1 million and receiver's costs of (coughs) (coughs) £223,863. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, he's just everywhere he goes. This guy racks up debt. Um, in December twenty eighteen, yeah, he's he's the reverse Midas. Everything he touches turns to shit. Um, in December twenty eighteen, the court ruled that he he can be extradited to India to face uh, fraud investigation charges. In July twenty nineteen, Malia was granted permission to appeal to London's High Court against his extradition. That was rejected. Um, He went to the UK Supreme Court in May 2020 in the wake of losing his appeal. That was rejected, and um, he could be extradited in the next 28 days. However, in October 2020, the Indian government was uh, notified that Malia could not currently be extradited due to an unspecified confidential legal matter. Now, when was it that the, um, the people could take possession of the house if you didn't pay it? It was May 2020. Oh. Isn't that an amazing coincidence? So yeah. he avoided extradition by not paying his mortgage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fucking hell. That just sucks. That's kind of smart, actually. I mean, would you rather be foreclosed on and go and live in a smaller house or be sent back to an Indi- India where people probably want to kill you by now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, I guess I'll get a new place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like move somewhere else. Um and uh, Malia was named. Uh, th- this is where it gets. This is the kind of the uh, the cherry on top. I don't even don't know if Malia's been extradited yet. I think those things take ages. Like that could yeah. take up to two, three years to get this guy out of the country. Uh, Malia was named in the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers that were leaked confidentially, uh, documenting uh, offshore investment by various politicians and high-profile names. Across the world. Um, the Panama Papers were years ago. The Paradise Papers were this year. And he was in both of them. So this guy is... He's in deep with pretty much every scam that you can get your hands on in the financial world. And I want to end wow. this with a quote from his son, um, who was also part of the eviction notice. Or His son, who is also an author called Siddhartha Malia, said recently, My surname was never a burden. But when I was growing up in the UK, when I was growing up in the UK, sorry, I was sheltered from all this uh, negativity that comes with the name. But even today, when I'm doing my first book, you still read articles with headlines like VJ Malia's son wrote a book. So I think the burden stays where it is. I wonder at what level people will stop referring to me as VJ Malia's son and give me respect for something that I have done for myself. So... No, Never. the son of a wealthy thief <laughs> who's uh, no doubt used his father's name and power to get where he is today. Here is is the tiniest cup of sympathy, young man. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't like. I get that it's tough when you are a tr- attached by your name to something like this, but you lived in the most lavish um, wealth while other people were not getting paid including like employees your dad bought you a fucking airline for your 18th birthday i don't think you now get to say why can't people judge me on my book about mental health like you've written a book (laughs) about your mental health and the majority of it was caused by the issues related to your father so 
I well. so that's that's the story of VJ Malia, um, who is either currently in the process of being extradited to India or has been extradited to India. I couldn't find any updates other than this quote from his son, which happened um, at the start of October. But yeah, what do you make of VJ Malia, the uh, good time king or the king of good time? Uh, good times who is now on the run and probably been evicted from his lavish london house i think that it is refreshing to know that there are garbage <laughs> shitty rich boy businessmen in other countries doing garbage shitty businessmen things yes um, it's and- not just the u.s and the uk it's fucking everywhere <laughs> <laughs> um i think just because that debt God, that's so much. And it it means that other people are suffering and going oh, yeah. without so that he can have that debt or it's not just made up uh Yeah. It's 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 hurting somebody somewhere. And I, I yeah, I, I he's crippled portions of India's economy, you know, and you know, there were people who were his employees were driven into destitution because he didn't pay them minimum wage. He didn't pay them at all. So that's that's really scummy. And then you're throwing these parties and inviting the press. I just like, I don't know if he's doing it deliberately because he's a psychopath, like a lot of high-level businessmen are, or if he's just so lacking in self-awareness that he doesn't see why those two things together would be a problem. Yeah, he's he's not seeing the causation there. And I think... Because of that, and not knowing which way, I'll take it down a little bit, but I'm I'm going to go all the way with a 94 on him because that's a nice. lot of money and a lot of hunger and a lot of sad stuff in a place yeah. where it's tough already, man. Shit, yeah. And uh, thank you. That's that's a really good score. VJ Malia getting really high up there in our, our chart, which I, I really need to compile one day by looking at the scores. Um, VJ <laughs> Malia, yeah, it's just... um. In a sense, okay, so he hasn't, you know, he hasn't killed anyone or anything like that, but he is clearly, he had a a way of making money, and it worked once, right? So he was a one-trick pony that hit the big time, and he did, but a successful businessman is either able to consistently make money over a long period of time, like Warren Buffett or or Bill Gates or, you know, any of these big-name businessmen you care to think of, or... They are so good at coming up with great ideas, they do them time and time again, like a Steve Jobs. So you you think of a great idea, you get people around you who can implement it, and then you move on to your next great idea. That's what Steve Jobs did. This guy had one good idea. I'm going to make cheap beer for India. I'm going to completely grab the market. I'm going to put myself front and center and we're going to make the brand part of my identity. That was a brilliant idea and congratulations VJ Malia. But that's pretty much it as far yep. as good ideas go for him. The rest of his ideas seem to be I'm going to rack up the kind of debt that most third world nations would be embarrassed by. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, and now he's he knows what's going to happen. He's going to be put in some really horrible Indian prison for the rest of his life. And he's never going to see, you know, freedom ever again. So, um, well, it really depends on how much money he has left because he's been declared bankrupt, right? So it's not like, 
let's let's think. Um, so, what's his name? Uh, Colombian drug lord. Um, oh, what's his name? How uh, have I drawn a blank on him? Yeah, the I guy mean, from he was Narcos. The cocaine guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the cocaine guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he was um, Pablo Escobar. Got Pablo it. Escobar, thank you so much. Escobar was so wealthy that when they eventually caught him, he'd already built his own prison that he could go and live in while he was serving his prison sentence, and he carried on his his drug dealings from inside his own custom built prison. Very smart move, in yeah, fairness. But yeah, <laughs> but that the the reason he could do that was because he he surreptitiously stashed away millions of dollar dollars buried like literally in the ground around Colombia. Yeah. So I don't know if VJ Malia has been digging lots of holes around Kolkata and Bangalore. <laughs> but if anybody stumbles across like literally billions of rupees, take it. Um because it's probably his. Uh <laughs> so if he does go to prison, I I I think he'll end up like Bernie Madoff. Just like Bernie Madoff yeah. had a shitload of money. And the guy ended up in regular club fed. You know, he yeah. he was not in like some minimum security, you know, thing. It was he didn't like go to quite rehab, he, yeah, <laughs> or, or rehab or something like that, or house arrest. He went to prison, prison. And actually, in fairness to Bernie Madoff, the first thing he did when he got there was he bought up the entire prison supply of uh, ramen noodles and sold them at twice they would have cost normally. To everyone else. Dick. What an <laughs> asshole. So he became the ramen king in prison. Um, oh. So that's Vijay Malia, who is no doubt looking at decades in prison for, you know, ending multiple people's financial security, crippling 13 banks, and owing $1.2 billion, which is just fucking mad, really. So. It's, yeah. Well, that was, a, that was a good story, man. I know. I enjoyed because I again it was you see the thing is I've been meaning to cover one person in particular for weeks and weeks and I keep on finding more interesting people in the interim and I'm like oh I can hang on to him I can keep him in my back pocket when I read this story I was like I've got to do this guy he's throwing lavish <laughs> like deca- like cr- crazy unbelievably wealth wealthy parties for his best friends and people are suffering this guy is a classic asshole idiot He's, yeah, yeah. It, and again, this this probably wouldn't have been a problem if he'd been surrounded by people who were better at making decisions than he was. But it seems like he was surrounded by yes men who just implemented his crazy schemes as it went. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Sh- shoot, my my guy, I think, was <laughs> a way to prove that even brilliant people can do dumb shit. Yeah. And yeah. I think this guy is more of a uh, just. An it yeah an idiot. just an arsehole yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's just a rich arsehole who who conned people out of their money you know like you said your guy was somewhat noble um because he he went in to do good and he did because cocaine had very important uses in the field of uh sedation and things like that but um mm-hmm. you know ultimately he created things that have been misused over time not probably what he set out to do he wasn't like some mad scientist going ha i'm going to rule the world and like created <laughs> stuff to do that he just happened to create stuff that has been on that's gone on to be used for some quite terrible things vj malia set out to get as much money as possible. And when he realized he couldn't do that, he did it in an illegal way and did it in as dodgy a way as possible and then fled the country. 
So, and then he's like, oh, I have, I have done nothing wrong. Why the fuck are you in London if you've done nothing wrong? You know, <laughs> your son's nice disowning you. So, <laughs> Jesus. I like the darkness. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, it's so, it's so crazy. So that was the story um, of VJ Malia. And what was your guy's name again? Albert uh, Neiman. It's Albert like Neiman, Neiman Marcus is how it's spelled. And yeah, okay. I actually ran across him because I was watching Bill Nye Saves the World and he was oh. one of the mad scientists. And I was like, oh, dude, there was an inventor that made Coke? Cool. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't just like two people in the forest with some cocoa leaves going, oh, I wonder what happens if we grind this up? What's going to happen then? <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, snort it now. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of mad. So uh I guess that's that's kind of a, a good story, really, and the uh, good can be used for bad, ultimately, probably after your death. But that's our show for this episode. Um, I had a lot of fun doing this. I had a lot of fun researching VJ Malia because it's one of those things where you can see it coming. Like, when you yeah. hear about the airline going out of business, you're like, okay, this is the tip of the fucking iceberg, and then it snowballs from there. And I loved your guy. I, I'd never, I didn't know that either. I didn't know the same guy that created cocaine also created mustard gas. That's... That's amazing. <laughs> Good stuff. So, yeah. So thank you to everybody for listening. I would also like to point out that we do, uh, as you can see if you're watching the video podcast, we have a new Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots, you can support us with a number of tiers from £3, which is $4.50, all the way up to £100, which is $167, something like that. Um, so yeah. If you hang around at any of the levels for more than three months, you get a free gift. Uh, go and give us a support because uh, Lord knows the sponsors aren't rolling in thanks to some issues with our host. But uh, yeah, um, please go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots. And um, if uh, you ever find yourself in uh, a line of work where you aim to do good but ultimately invent two terrible things uh, maybe try and carry on and be safer around them so you don't die at the age of 26 <laughs> and if you are making a shitload of money from beer and um you know the company or or a product and that the advertising of that product then gets banned by your government don't try and do the same thing with a much more expensive franchise <laughs> <coughs> it just ends in disaster so um, thank you everybody so much for listening uh, Derek would you like to say goodbye bye everybody thank you so much everybody for listening and we will see you again in a couple of weeks take care now bye bye